I'm Sarah, and welcome back to Sarah in Tech. My next guest, you may know him, is Siraj Raval. Hi, Siraj. How's it going, Sarah? Thanks for having me. No problem. So what brings you to Boise? Well, about a year ago, COVID hit, and I was living in San Francisco at the time, and there was an order from the mayor as to the curfew, and it was an 8 p.m. curfew, and I remember thinking, coming home from my office to my apartment at the time, that there was a, this was a curfew, and the police officer stopped me when I was five minutes late, so it was 8.05 p.m., and he's like, sir, you need to be inside, and I just, at that point, something clicked in me where I was just, I felt very, um, I felt a desire to leave. I don't like curfews, so I just, next day, I you know, left my office lease, my home lease, my everything that was there, and I just bought a car and I just drove 10 hours to Boise just for temporarily. It, it was just supposed to be for the summer mm-hmm. before I went back. Um, but I've seemed to have stuck around. So would you say that you were an easy teenager with your love of curfews? No. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately I wasn't. I definitely was an easy child just because I was pretty quiet when I was a kid. But when it came to high school, I definitely rebelled quite a lot, like ran away from home and um, definitely got my parents uh, pretty mad at me for all of my rebellion. Wow. Uh, How old were you when you ran away from home? Uh, I was, I mean, I was 17. So (laughs) it wasn't too early. You were 365 days away from being legal and it wouldn't be running away at that point, but. Yep. Have you ever run away from home? I cannot say that I have run away from home or snuck out of the house. So I guess I was pretty boring. I guess so. So when did you first discover your love of technology? Do you remember? I remember when I was um, five years old, my um, mom bought us an MS-DOS computer. And uh, are you familiar with MS-DOS? Yes, I had an MS-DOS computer really? too. Yeah. Um, I remember playing video games on it mm-hmm. in the little pixelated characters and doing, uh, you know, multiple choice questions and stuff like that, brain teasers. And Do you remember playing any of those video games? I One in particular I remember was like a fireworks simulation. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was the first time I saw something animated on that screen versus the black and white text that's always there primarily. And I just was, I was sitting on my dad's lap and he, he like clicked a button and I remember just being wowed by the rainbow of colors and thinking, wow, there's so much that you can do with this thing. And I would like play with my cousin and sister in that I would make these games where I would say like, if, you know, if I type this in, the Pokemon world will open up and you can go inside and just make something up like that. And they would be so wide eyed. And it was my way of like, um, introducing them to, Um, I guess you could say magic or something mysterious and new. The magical world of technology? I guess so. I know a lot of people make uh, data science jokes that it's black magic. Mm Mm-hmm. So so you went from an MS-DOS system, and how did you get into your passion and love of data science? Because if I remember correctly, you studied CS at Columbia. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I started off... Um, with finance as I was a finance major actually freshman year of college and 
Got to make that money, huh? You got to make that money, especially coming from a lower middle class family where my parents were always hounding me about money and saying they would never pay for my college unless I got into an Ivy League school. And it was drilled into my head since I was a second grader. Like I was in second grade and I was like, I am going to Harvard or Columbia or something. Whereas everyone else is like, what's, you know, five plus five. <laughs> um, so definitely my mom's, it's all because of my mom. That intent was always there. And in terms of data science and my motivation to start that, I went from finance to computer science just because I spent a semester abroad in Europe couch surfing. And one of the people, the first person I stayed with, his name was Alex McCaw in London. And he was the first person I'd stayed with outside of the United States. And he, I remember he had this Hackintosh that he had built and he showed me the screen. Are you familiar with Hackintoshes? No. Well, I've heard plenty about them. It's a hack together Macintosh, right? Yes, exactly. Well said. <laughs> That's, that should be like the trademark of it. But, um, and I remember thinking, this is so amazing and cool. I can't believe you can put windows on a Mac and then run all of these apps that this guy had built in like a matter of 24 hours, like a, you know, a um, automatic blog post um, filler tool, like these design tools, just these very creative technologies with code. And that's when I'm, I was, I was awakened to the fact that you could make something incredible. And he said he was envious of me, Alex, it was the smart programmer because I was an American and I had access to San Francisco and in San Francisco, you could um, earn like a six-figure income doing this stuff. And he wished that he could do that. I mean, fast forward to 10 years. I mean, Alex has written the book on JavaScript, the O'Reilly book. He um, worked at Stripe, which is one of the IPO unicorns of San Francisco, one of the great modern stories of a fintech company, which Stripe powers something like 50% of transactions on the web now. Wow. Um, uh, and then now Alex has IPO'd his own company, Clearbit, which is a data API. You just put in your email and you get all of this social data. Just a brilliant guy. But I was lucky enough to meet him 10 years ago at the very start. And just, it's insane how one person in your life can change so much, isn't it? And they feed into you a lot of different information and awaken different parts of you. Hmm. And it brings so much to light and can definitely change you as a person, hopefully for the better. Yeah, he definitely did. I, I had, um, you know, I was suspended from Columbia when I was a freshman and I was very lost. And this was a way for me to reset. And computer science was just something that I'd always loved. I, I didn't know if I could have, could be good at it. Like maybe this was just wasn't how my brain worked, but it was just through grit and passion. And, you know, I think more than anything, it's just grit to just sit there and like program and fail and fail and fail and fail, but just to have this meaning behind it um, that made me continue because there was just so many cool things that I could do. So I started with computer science and then I just built everything that I possibly could. IOS. My first app was called iBaton um, where you took your iPhone and you could select a song on Spotify and then moving your phone like a conductor's baton, you, can, you could speed up or slow down the tempo of the music in real time. Is that because you had, were in marching band and had a lot of passion for music as well, and so it put two of your passions together? Absolutely. I've always loved music. Um, you know, in a different life, I'd be a composer or you know, a conductor of some kind. What is your favorite uh, artist for classical music? I would say my favorite 
artist for classical music would be um, Franz Liszt. He was a German composer. Mm -hmm. um, most of his music is very sad. Oh, it's weird. Like I consider myself a generally happy person. Like mm -hmm. I'm hardly ever depressed. It's kind of hard for me to be depressed, but I just love sad music. I'm, I'm not sure why. I just I listen to it and I feel emotional and I you know want to cry. Um, but then it makes me feel happy. That's a, an odd thing to say about sad music, that it eventually makes you happy. Yeah, it eventually makes me happy. And I kind of, I found that I kind of need to be a little bit sad to get into a creative state. I'm not sure that's why, I'm not sure why my mind works like that. I think it's like the tortured artist, even though it's a trope, it's a true thing. Like a lot of artists, um, even myself in particular, when I get into my flow for painting or working in any sort of medium, there is a certain level of sadness uh, that feeds into the creativity. And uh, the tortured artist trope definitely <laughs> encompasses that. And I mean, between all of the wonderful stories about artists cutting off their ears or having unrequited love, um, definitely fits into that space. Yeah, yes. Do you consider yourself a tortured artist? I think that um, I can be tortured just by my own thoughts and my own overthinking. Uh, I tend to have a mind that races and I'm hardly ever in reality. I'm always like in different layers of abstraction, trying to connect the dots between different things. S you know, something's very esoteric like consciousness or free will or um, just philosophy. And then, um, but at the same time, I've learned to be a little bit more grounded in my thinking. That's all, always a process. I, I don't consider myself a tortured artist as much as I would like to say. I, I've been very privileged, I think, in my life. I think you've had quite a lot of success. Thank you. Um, I know me personally, when I think, like my thoughts are so spaced out that if I say them out loud, people get terribly confused because they're not linear. Mm. Uh, have you found that to be useful in any way or is it just like annoying or it's like i'm running a bunch of threads in parallel mm. and then at different points in my thoughts i try to share them mm -hmm. and and no one understands the parallels between them and jumping through the many different threads that i'm running mm -hmm. uh, so i try to keep it mostly to myself i guess yeah <laughs> or take notes on it so that way i can go back and work on projects and things like that but uh definitely not good for a brainstorming session <laughs> right because you're probably working on a lot right just yeah i have quite a few things going uh <laughs> between yeah. working full-time a podcast and running a meetup and maybe if everyone didn't know i'm a single mom so uh definitely quite a few uh plates up in the air yeah that's i mean that's hard it's admirable i feel like there should be more of that like i guess single moms who are you know, in like the workplace and like our career women. And do you feel like there, there's like enough of that out there? Like that there's more enough of an example or that there should be more? I really wish more people admitted to being parents. And then like even the dads like admitted to being parents and being passionate about being parents, but also saying that they're career driven. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I was at both of my parents' workplaces growing up and they had career jobs. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think there's anything wrong um, with being both career driven and being a very driven mom. Uh, my daughter definitely 
went to the zoo, went to a live concert, and saw fireworks this weekend. Oh, and she went to the Natural History Museum as well. That's a lot. Uh, so, and I also, you know, did my full job and everything else and all my obligations. And I ran a meetup yesterday, and I'm going to be on a Fred, Friends podcast tomorrow. And Wow. Yeah, it's, you know, but if I want my daughter to have a successful career, uh, I need to lead by an example. And mm. the example is, this is my life. Why not live every aspect of it to 100%? Mm. I like that. It's very tiring. I can imagine, <laughs> yeah. Got to lead by example. So um, do you have any lasting life advice? Hmm. Like uh, advice you'd want to give to your kids or your grandkids that you think would stand the test of time? Well, yeah, I think um, one of the ethos that I live by, um, always try to condense any, um, any set of thoughts I have into like a bullet point of three things. And so I think one of the frames I look at is that um, a clean mind, a fit body, and a house full of love. Uh, these, things, these things cannot be bought. They must be earned. That's all very true and very meaningful. I try to live by that. But also that in order to lead, similar to you, you have to stand alone. You have to be willing to stand alone. And that's something I would want to imbue as well. It's definitely hard. I think one of the president's wives um, said something along the lines of a woman. Oh, what is it? Uh, a woman who is always part of the crowd never leads it or something along that. Mm. And so to f go fearlessly out strive out and try new and crazy things absolutely and you've definitely done that with a lot of your projects and what is it success is always built on the backs of failures mm. absolutely i've had many failures many public failures and they have all shaped me and my character my outlook on life and reality i try to be a learning machine learn from everything Update my weights. <laughs> Just like different epochs and batch sizes running through a neural net. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I bet you built several neural nets um, in your life or different I mean, models. Yes, I yeah. have. Uh, my favorite is the autoencoder. Mm. Outlier. Multivariate outlier detection. Mm. I like doing outlier detection. You could argue that almost everything is outlier detection. <laughs> uh, there's some philosophy in there. I like that. But, um, <coughs> sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, and you also have built a lot of neural nets too, haven't you? Yes. A lot of one-off neural nets in Python, mostly with Keras, very easy to use library. You know, each line is a layer. You can get something up and running in under 50 lines of code. But I think that you know, the more I think about it, one thing I've learned, if there's one thing that I've learned, it's that algorithms are a commodity. You know, there's no limit to how many open source algorithms that could exist at any given time. It's the data that matters. 
in terms of being able to do data science. And right now there's just not a lot of it out there publicly, at least compared to what's locked away in institutions like hospitals and universities and clinics, and it's all locked away. So I would like to see more open source data. I think that'd be really cool. Have you, have you ever used open source data in general? I mean, I have. I can't say that I find good, any good open source data because most of the places that spend money to gather the data don't want to share that information. Mm -hmm. And so it's very gated. And I mean, I work with billions of transactions uh, at work for fun or well, there's a purpose to what I'm doing. It's not fun, but I think it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Or and I've worked with medical data, mm -hmm. but you don't even have the rights to your own medical data. Mm -hmm. Your smartwatch, own, like the company that your smartwatch belongs to owns your medical data and trying mm. to get it to release to your um, doctor, then your doctor won't use the medical data off of your phone or off of your smartwatch because of the measurement errors. And it's just like all of these lack of sharing. Mm -hmm. And if we could, at least if I could own my own data, mm -hmm. that could be big. And I mean, even my social media presence, if, I had a mental illness, we could possibly put it into an algorithm mm -hmm. and help psychologists diagnose mental illness. And it would be very easy to see that from a social media profile. And there are so many beautiful things that we could do. It's just that it's really hindered by all of these different entities owning the data. And so it's difficult to even have your own. Absolutely. Uh, today I was learning about a woman named Cynthia Saido, who is the inventor of differential privacy. In the 70s, she invented this, and she's still a professor emeritus at Harvard University of Computer Science. So super inspiring woman. But um, the reason I was looking into her is because I was looking into differential privacy. And the reason I was looking into differential privacy is because that, alongside two other technologies, homomorphic encryption and federated learning, can allow us as um, anonymous agents to be able to learn from private data sets without actually knowing the content of those data sets. Um, and this manifests itself in a project that I'm very passionate about called OpenMind, openmind.org. They are working on, um, it's my friend Andrew Trask at DeepMind. This is like his side project, but it's a partnership with the University of Oxford, Udacity, and several other institutions where anybody can use these open source libraries in Python to be able to learn from a data set like primarily health data, that's really their target, and let the provider, whether it's a clinic or hospital, know that I am going to use this machine learning model on your data, I'm going to learn from it, but I also don't know what the contents of it are. So I'll be able to make a prediction using it, but I'll never know. And so in this way, the patient data is kept secure um, and you get to train a model on it. And if more institutions started adopting some sort of framework like this, I think we'd get to a world that you're talking about where we can actually start learning from data to make treatments available. That would be very beautiful. And I hope it becomes more widely adopted and not just one or two one-off projects. Absolutely. I mean, and, and you're working with data science all day, right? Yes, that, that I am a data scientist. That is what I do. And you're basically in front of a screen then for, for all of those hours. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then in my free time, I run a data science meetup. Yeah. And then I help align um, presenters for also another conference series all of which are 
data scientists and help run that. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> given that that's the case, you're doing all this amazing work in data science. It's front of, in front of a screen. I have a gift for you. Uh oh. Yeah. So. It's uh, purple, which I believe is your favorite color. Yes, um, that's right. Um, so you can, these are blue light blocking glasses from a company called Contre Blue. Um, they're a company out of Los Angeles and you can just put them on and uh, you look very smart and snazzy. Yeah. I was going for a comfortable look today. Comfortable, okay, mm -hmm. gotcha. So what you can do with those glasses is you can be um, on your phone or on your computer, even late into the night, and they block the blue light, which inhibits melatonin production, um, which in, which in, uh, inhibits sleep. So this is a way for, to have the best of both worlds. Uh, did you uh, hear in one of my prior podcasts that I shut everything off at nine? I have them all on smart switches and everything shuts off at nine. There you go. So that way I can fall asleep by midnight. Perfect. <laughs> so it sounds like I have a hack so I can get three more working hours in. There you go. So I guess you don't even technically need them, but I guess they're just a fun pair of glasses to wear. They yeah. are. Do I look good? You do. Yeah. <laughs> Why, thank you. <clears throat> do you have a pair like these? I don't. I just got one pair. Oh. For you. Oh. Yeah. Well, thanks. You're welcome. So do you have any projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, um, I'm working on two different projects, um, actually three. No Are you allowed to talk about them? Yeah, um, actually four. Actually six. five. Actually five. Uh, well, six. Well, seven. Yeah. Oh, okay. Eight? Yeah, nine. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we can do this all day. I feel like we're channeling my toddler. I guess a little bit, yeah. You're bringing out a toddler to me too. Where are the carrots? Um, hot dogs. I'm more like a hot dogs. Chicken nuggets and ranch. Okay, uh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> How could you go wrong? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the first project is called Scripsy. It is a pill recognition app for your device. You can use your camera and recognize one of the top 100 prescription pills uh, instantly. And we have that working today. Um, but now the goal is to recognize a thousand pills by next Friday. So quite a insane task it sounds like exponential growth is expected pretty much there is no uh so the next day will be like next week it'll be ten thousand. the week after that 100 you know just keep going up the, the ladder so there's scripsy there's a chat bot i'm working on for the city of la um, that helps provide questions around covid masks and also behavioral health mo most recently um, there's a third project that I just started working on today. I literally signed the contract today. Oh, wow. Um, on using heart arrhythmia data to try to predict um, the ideal spot for cardiologists to place a catheter during a surgery. Oh, wow. And this would hopefully reduce deaths during cardiac surgery. Um, and that's going to take a month, I, I estimated. Yeah, I uh, also worked in cardiology back in the day. Nice, where at? Uh, at the Mayo Clinic. I, I helped them do A-B testing around uh, cardiology types of surgery to see which ones had the best outcome, you know, the control or the experimental change. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a good time. Can't say I ever actually watched a heart surgery in mm. uh, theater, but... Do you I'm think you could? I'd, I'm, I'm really squeamish. Squeamish. I actually was in pre-med... Really? And uh, they had a cadaver lab at my undergrad, 
And uh, that's when I decided to be a zoologist. Mm. <laughs> Makes sense. I guess there's the like different thought pattern you were talking about. Well, I mean, they're not that different. They're both biology. It's just that cutting open a human makes me squeamish. And whereas watching a zebra and documenting its behavior and making an experiment and uh, writing a paper around it's a lot of fun, mm. which is my entryway into data science. Here we are. Data science statistics. Can't go wrong. So you have all of these projects going on. What do you do in your free time to relax and chill? Well, I like spending time with my family. That's the primary thing. Um, the next thing, it's more of a recent thing that I've been thinking about in my head for a few months. It's a book that I'm writing on bioinformatics for beginners. And those two are my primary thing in terms of like free time. Also jujitsu. I love jujitsu. Don't go as often as I'd like, but. Well, I mean, with all of the COVID and everything going around, I suppose physical contact like jujitsu is okay if you let it go a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say I'm super afraid of COVID personally. Like if I was much older or obese, I would be. Well, I, most of the city of Boise doesn't seem to too concerned about COVID the entire pandemic. It's pretty great. I'm a fan. I think it's a, a great thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say anything. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, hmm. <laughs> I know quite a bit about you. Uh, yeah. And we've spent quite a bit of time together. That's right, we have. And I am just trying to think of some fun things to talk about. Right, I mean, I, I mean, it's been, we've, we've talked quite a lot. Yes, yeah. it's true. Uh, so, I know what's going on. Oh, I know what I need to ask you. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are really wondering what's going on and why you're not making videos at the same rate that you previously were making videos with mm. on YouTube. Um, I know personally, I was a consumer of a lot of your videos and you were doing weekly live sessions. And before that you were doing like twice weekly educational data science videos and kind of seem to be on a hiatus and everyone's a little bit worried or missing you. Yeah, I, um, you know, basically, how do I say this? I fell in love. <gasps> with a girl wow two actually wow i mean three 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 never mind three and it's i like spending my time with them and that's really taken up a lot of my headspace and it's just also nice to not be um to take a hiatus every once in a while and just like relax and be present because when you're in it you are in it and everything else bows before the creative process so i've just kind of redirected my attention and energy to them that's a, a noble cause so they are your family they're my family yeah definitely um you know i have helen who's a three-year-old and then i have her mom sarah who <laughs> is in front of me right now <laughs> hi everyone Sur surprise <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I have Bear. Which is a Labradoodle. A Labradoodle that I have had a contemptuous relationship <laughs> with, but ultimately I will grow to fall deeper in love with over the years. I, the I hear Labradoodles mellow out around two years. I'm, I'm hoping she mellows out because she's still a puppy. And one of my flaws, one of my biggest flaws truly, is that I've always been an impatient person. Um, but absolutely not good for your interpersonal relationships. Would not recommend being impatient. Uh, be patient. Calm down. It's another life advice for like any kids. I mean, when you're young, it's more fun to drive fast cars when you're young. Fast cars are wasted on the old. Mm. But most young people can't afford truly fast cars. And most old people can't truly appreciate them. Absolutely. Those are wise words. I guess you could, you know, replace that with just like fast processors even. <laughs> I don't know. I think young kids truly appreciate fast, fast CPUs, CPUs. Yeah, or GPUs. Mm. And old people don't even know what those are most of the time. Right or, well, that's the metric to decide whether or not you're old. If you know what a CPU and a GPU is. Mm. You heard it from her first. Back in my day, Netflix go. were sent on DVDs. Mm. <laughs> we're going to sound so ancient in 20 years, I assume. Back in my day, we used to talk with our mouths. <laughs> Neuralink isn't a thing. Or what's the other one? Colonel. Colonel. Shout out to Brian. Yeah. Back in my day, we had dial-up, and it took over a minute to load MySpace. Ah. <laughs> Did you, um, was MySpace your main go-to social network back in the day? Before it really went downhill, yeah. That was yeah. where most everyone was. Did you, like, custom design your page at all? That was part of my uh, gateway drug to programming was HTML programming my MySpace page and actually doing all of the little bits and customizing it. And mm. I, w I guess I was a, a little bit odd for a high schooler, but... I was in all those advanced classes. Yeah, I would say you're still a little bit odd. I'm completely normal. I reject your... You reject my... Summary of the situation. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but being odd is kind of lovable. Aw. Yeah. I love you too. I love you too. <laughs> Let's stop being cheesy before everyone grows. That's right, yeah. Um. Anyway, <laughs> about data. Yeah. So, is there anything about your life that you want to share or make public? Yeah. Um, I mean, I know you're already like a really public figure and so a lot is already out there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's good to have that segmentation of this is who I am and this is part of me that I keep back. Yeah, I would like to share that I plan on using all of my knowledge to improve human health on AI. I believe that's the most meaningful thing to use AI for is human health. And I plan on spending the next 10 years focused on that in terms of my career. And then um, just focusing on being more of a mentor and a guide for young developers to try to 
accept and embrace and not be afraid of the newest technologies. I will continue to make content on the web, be it blog posts or videos or books. Um, it's just a part of my psyche. It's part of who I am. And yeah, I'm just, I'm pretty happy in life. I'm in a good place. I'm not, I don't feel lost. I feel very settled in what I want. Um, I'm engaged. <gasps> to whom? Uh, to you. <laughs> Yes, I am just waiting for the ring to be resized. Yeah, that's my dad's working on that. Should get a call from him tonight, um, but we'll see what he says. Fingers crossed that he's completely done with it. I can show you a pic. That's the goal. But it's very cool that it's custom. Yeah, he's. that's one of the things. He's always been a jeweler and a watchmaker, watch repair person my whole life. I've never actually asked him for his services before. Um, but I'm sure he, I mean, he is elated and thrilled that I finally did. But yeah, other than that, um, I don't think there's much else to share than, um, goal alignment. So I've been thinking about goal alignment quite a lot. This idea of what is the most important thing in the world and one quote that I really like to think about lately is that evolution. Like evolution is the process of um, the design, manufacturing, and distribution of intelligence over a period of time. And at first it was nature that did that for us in the form of genes and atoms and bytes, um, genes and atoms. And then we started designing intelligence in the form of bytes, the fundamental unit of computation. And we were designed and now we are the designers and the cost curve for this process is fast approaching zero. And so when this process, the cost curve hits zero um, and intelligence moves freely throughout all matter and bytes and all reality itself, the most important thing in the world will become goal alignment between the different intelligent agents, whether it's us as biological agents, the biological agents we create, plants, organisms, computers, chatbots, all of these intelligent agents, like we all have to align with the same goal in order to prevent what I think our goal should be, which is the mitigation of existential threats, be it nuclear war, um, climate catastrophe, um, technological disruption, or the three main ones that Yuval Noah Harari has outlined in his book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, but goal alignment and how we get there on a global scale because we are an internet village. We are not just nation states. We are one internet village and the world is waking up to this reality as we all come online. Millions of people are coming online every single day. And a lot of those are in Africa, right? Absolutely. Africa, India, shout out to India. And they are hungry for knowledge and work and contribution. And we need to recognize them as our as our people, you know, and read and create a new story around a global consciousness that is awakening. And what would you say, like, the main goals are to stop climate change, to stop the existential threats that exist out there. And, but it's not financially incentivized, I guess would be the big problem. I mean, you think the imminent demise of the human population should be financially, uh, you know, motivated, but that's not how it works, unfortunately. Yep. 
and how do you get the goal alignment? Like what carrot do you put in front of the donkey to get it to go that way? So one thing I've learned after making about 400 videos, educational videos on machine learning algorithms is that the one thing people care about the most is making money. Yes. And you know, I've made so many videos on reinforcement learning for like water preservation or like, um, you know, cleanliness or poverty reduction. And those videos don't get as much engagement as the videos about, you know, watch me build a finance startup, watch me build X startup because, you know, money speaks for itself. So, you know, if we could incentivize that good behavior, like, you know, I just met a guy today, um, Tristan, who said that every other day he like goes to the beach and like cleans up trash for 15 minutes just as like a therapeutic experience like nobody is telling him to do this he just does that and i was just you know mouth agape like if everybody did this the world would be a better place and you know he's like people today don't have a sense of a connection to the land like we are so removed from the earth that that feels like a line straight out of the the good earth um it's a book where uh it emphasizes the connection between man and earth and and how we need it um, and it's about actually farming but they definitely dramatize it and make you understand the poignant um, purposes behind it so but how, how do you financially incentivize stopping climate change i mean i know we have carbon credits and things like that but the biggest abusers of the climate are corporations and they seem unfazed Absolutely. So we live in a world where value generation and capital allocation are not properly aligned. Companies get paid millions of dollars for pouring sludge into the ocean. That's an example of the misalignment of these two things. They're generating all this value. Um, they're, they're not generating any value, but they're gaining all of this capital from doing something like that in the sense that generating value is actually preserving our environment. And so, and the reason that is that way is because of, how do I say this? It's because of philosophy. It's because of modern philosophy. And so one way I like to think about this is that it's important to learn mathematics um, so that we can learn physics. It's important to learn physics so that we can learn chemistry. It's important to learn chemistry so that we can learn biology. It's important to learn biology so that we can learn psychology. It's important to learn psychology so we can learn economics. And it's important to learn economics so we can learn philosophy. So down the chain of dependencies of subjects, philosophy is the end goal in order for us to organized as a society and the modern philosophy is that i don't know if you want to take a second to oh i was going to say sociology and then philosophy possibly um that could be a good one <laughs> no that that could be a good one um but the modern philosophy is that you know i i i me 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 individualism narcissism this is what america incentivizes get your dollar go home you know take care of the family and you know my, what's mine is mine what's yours is yours nimbyism all of these things are uh, they stream from this idea of the other and me before all others. And if we only had a more collectivist mentality, um, that wouldn't be the case. So how do we switch human culture in, like you said, sociology and economics and philosophy? I think we have to start at that primary level, which is mathematics, and then move across the sciences down by creating technologies that will downstream change what philosophy means. So one concrete example would be um, building a technology that would incentivize recycling or building a technology that would incentivize um, taking care of your own health. What do this, these technologies look like? Well, 
we 10 years ago saw that it was possible to create a digital organism that was unstoppable called Bitcoin using the proof of work algorithm. And that technology incentivized using raw computation to solve random mathematical problems. Since then, we've seen brilliant individuals realign Bitcoin's open source technology that anybody can find on GitHub to instead incentivize scientific research. There's science coin, there's solar coin that incentivizes uh, solar energy production. There is um, a pharma coin, which incentivizes pharmacists to give the right pills to their patients. There's all of these tokens that are being created that incentivize these things. So maybe perhaps something like recycle coin or health coin that pays people to be healthy. And this is just a very different way of looking at things. Like we don't like, why would I get paid for doing this? Well, in the same way that people invested in Bitcoin um, and the network's value grew, if we can get people excited about an idea, just like Dogecoin, I think people really misunderstand the value of Dogecoin. They look down on it and they think this is this is dog money. It's not relevant. It's very relevant because it's the first time that a meme has been able to be incentivized. And there's tangible value, millions of dollars behind this idea. And that's the future when everything else is automated. We're going to incentivize these abstract and esoteric concepts because those will be the remaining valuable items in society. In that way, it might seem like unicorn magic fantasy land to incentivize recycling, but you've seen with all of these other cryptocurrencies, value rises and falls. It generates based on people's belief. So again, use mathematics to downstream change philosophy in the form of new algorithms for consensus globally. That, that would be my first thought. Well, I have kind of two thoughts around this. Um, I know I think maybe it's Amsterdam or maybe it's a different city. They pay by the pound for garbage and for recycling. Mm. Um, <clears throat> also, if you don't have a job and you want one, they'll pay you to hand sort recycling. That way um, you can earn money if you want to earn it. But a one way to change that would be to pay individuals in some sort of cryptocurrency to do that. And the other thing that comes to mind is that all of these nation states are choosing crypto as a way to back their finances. Coming to mind is like Egypt, El Salvador, uh, I feel like Argentina as well. And um, <clears throat> even the city of Miami, there's a Miami yeah. coin. Yeah. Uh, so there are all these cryptos that, and instead of, you know, whatever currency El Salvador would have, mm. now it's Bitcoin because Bitcoin is more stable. Mm. And I don't think Bitcoin's going away, despite what everyone may want it to do. Absolutely. It's just going to be here, and it's probably going to increase in value. I agree. I'm all in on crypto. It's the way of the future. Do you ever feel like um, there's a technology out there that um, seems scary, but you're still somewhat interested in it? Well... You always talk about all these different technologies to like mind meld mm. or uh, just even just have some sort of like thing looking at your brain waves. Mm. That scares me because I don't get to own my own data. Someone gets to own my brainwave data. They can see a computational reading on my subconscious, which, which I'm not even aware of. Mm. And then they can target me with ads based upon my brain patterns. And I'm not comfortable with that. And I'm not sure I will ever adopt any sort of thing that utilizes my brain patterns or my brain waves 
or melds with my mind mm. or melds my mind to other minds. Um, I'm definitely very cautious about a lot of technology. I think that's healthy. For me, it's always the application that gets me the most excited and kind of narrows my focus. Um, have you ever had an idea that you couldn't quite put into words or perhaps an image in your head or some kind of abstract thought that it was just really hard to communicate? Yeah, it's like the same image when I fall asleep and it's just I can't describe it. But uh, it's generally upsetting but soothing simultaneously, which doesn't make any sense at all. It involves the color green. Hmm. So something like that, if there was a way to high full fidelity, not even high fidelity, visualize it. I would rather, You'd rather not. keep being like, I have no idea what that image is. I see it every night as I fall asleep and I'm okay with my life. I'll just live with the fact I don't know truly what my brain's referencing. Or I'm sure it could record like very accurately what your dreams are and give you yes. a synopsis of that. And that would probably be helpful. Be cool. better understanding yourself as a person but what you would be giving up just is so much like they could probably predict what you would do like based upon your brain waves and then the question becomes is is uh, do you exist as a free will or mm. is everything predetermined because we can see your brain waves. We can make assumptions about what you'll do throughout the day. And we know you're going to get coffee today at three. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, companies, social networks definitely create models of our behavior. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is so that they can predict what we're going to do so they can target us with ads. And um, ultimately, the goal is to be able to create a mental model of you that is as good, if not better than you at any given cognitive task, you know, because let's you know, assume Twitter wants the full, you know, 100% copy of Sarah so that it can use it as a worker, like, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that is the ultimate goal. Neuralink and all these things are just gonna continuously give them that data to create a fully, you know, 100% digital version, digital twin of you to then be able to use in different ways for profit. And then I could just go off and live my life and have the digital twin work all day? That's the idea. Well, ideally you would have it work for you and they wouldn't own it, but that would go back to your point of owning your data first. I don't think they would let me own my data. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. It's like we got to figure out this like data ownership stuff before we bring on the neural link and all that. And one very cool thing um, that I think Europe is doing right is they're creating laws around artificial intelligence before it exists mm. and we aren't even starting to address it in the United States mm. um, and I kind of wish we would and start creating those laws that say you know valuing of human life and things like that the there was a study in Stanford that they did right when self-driving cars started becoming like an idea more mm. than a reality and you know, would you run over a puppy or an old lady? Mm. And it was like hundred questions like that to see how a normal human um, separates, like what is the moral spectrum of it being okay? Like, would you run over three pregnant ladies or an able-bodied man? Mm. And it's just like, how does our value system work? And it's very uncomfortable questions. Uh, because, you know, you shouldn't be in a situation where a car has to choose who to run over, or who to hurt. 
But I mean, at some point, the cars will be intelligent enough to say, okay, I'm carrying a 35-year-old woman who has three kids, and in front of me is a homeless person. Um, you know, which one do I, like, harm? Do I swerve to not hit the homeless person in the middle of the street? Or do I, you know, mitigate the damage that's going to be done to the 35-year-old woman with three kids? Mm-hmm. And it's just laws should be um, springing up around this in order to protect everyone and say that they're equal uh, despite their stations in life. Absolutely. It's like a very hairy legal regulatory territory that it seems like people in Congress are reluctant to get into. Whereas in Europe, it's very progressive in terms of their leaders. They're very technologically aware. Same in China. Um, For some reason, we have promoted lawyers to the highest status positions in our government. I really enjoyed uh, the grilling they gave Mr. Zuckerberg. I think it was a couple years ago. And they're like, what is this Facebook thing? Yeah. I was like, ah, yes, that is our congressman. Doesn't know what that Facebook thing is. You mean you, my my grandkids put pictures on this thing? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Mr. Sirajival, do you have any closing remarks or closing thoughts you'd like to share with us? Sure. Um, One closing remark that I would like to make is that if the purpose of technology is to reduce scarcity, the ultimate purpose of technology is to eliminate mortality. And that is something worth dedicating a lifetime to. And I hope to do that. That is very beautiful and very eloquent. Thank you. So are you. Aw, thanks. Thanks for watching Sarah in Tech, everyone. Thanks for listening to Sarah in Tech. Feel free to email me at sarah at sarahintech.net or follow me on Instagram at sarahintech. Hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you.